Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. This is the reading of God's word. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're currently in a series called In the Beginning, where we're looking at the first four chapters of Genesis, and we spent the past few weeks unpacking the story of creation found in Genesis 1 and 2, which gives us this picture of an all-powerful God who speaks the entire cosmos into existence, who lovingly creates human beings in his own image, and then rests in the goodness of everything he's created. It's a picture of ultimate reality, of the way things were supposed to be. Well, we all know that things didn't stay that way, and we don't need the Bible to tell us that. All we need to do is turn on the news for five minutes to realize that something catastrophic has happened to the world God created. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, which is going to tell us exactly what happened and why. And what we're going to find is that at the root of everything that's wrong with the world, at the root of every broken family, at the root of all disease, all injustice, and all evil, is this thing called sin. And all sin can be traced back to this singular moment in the garden that changed the course of human history forever. And so today we're going to be looking at the first nine verses of chapter 3, and we're going to answer four questions about sin. Where does sin come from? What is sin? What does sin do to us? And what hope do we have? Okay, so if you're taking notes, those are the four questions. Where does it come from? What is it? What does it do to us? And what hope do we have? Okay, so number one, where does sin come from? Well, take a look with me at the way Genesis 3 opens. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, if you remember from last week, the way Genesis 2 closes is with this line, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. All is right in the world. It's this image of a perfect relationship between humankind and God. And then in the very next verse, you get the appearance of this crafty serpent. And we've all watched enough horror movies to know that something's about to go down. Something doesn't feel right here. And later, Revelation 20 confirms for us that this is, in fact, the first appearance of Satan in the Bible. Now, what was Satan doing in the garden? How did he even get there? Why is he speaking through a serpent? And to be honest, the Bible never answers these questions. And I know this can be frustrating for some of us, but I think it also tells us that these aren't questions that Genesis 3 was ever intending to answer. 
Okay, so if you notice with me first, the conversation that ensues between the serpent and the woman, it says this, He, the serpent, said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, a couple things I want to point out here is, number one, we immediately see the kind of enemy Satan is and how he operates. You know, the one thing that all great athletes have in common is that they all spend a considerable amount of time watching film. And the reason they watch film is not only to understand their own vulnerabilities, but also to study and learn their opponent's tendencies, to study and learn what makes their opponents tick, to know what weapons they have at their disposal. And if we were to watch film on Genesis 3, we would immediately understand why the Bible calls Satan the father of lies. This is like a clinic in lying. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, notice how subtle that is. He says any tree. He takes something God says and alters it ever so slightly because he knows that the most dangerous lies aren't the overt lies. They're the subtle ones. Are you sure that's what God says about money? Are you sure that's what God says about sex? And we know the enemy is doing his job because there are Christians all over the world right now asking, are you sure we should take the Bible as absolute truth? Because I mean, I don't think that's what God would have said. So can we just disregard this section and that section and that section? But you see, this is how the enemy works. Okay, number two. If you notice, Satan isn't out here trying to convince the woman that God doesn't exist. In fact, he's the one who brings up God in the conversation. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? In other words, Satan isn't trying to cast doubt on God's existence. He's trying to cast doubt on God's goodness because he knows that's where he can get her. He says, don't worry, you're not going to die. The only reason God said what he did was because he knows that if you eat from that tree, you're going to become like him. In other words, he paints a picture of a God who doesn't have our best interests in mind. He paints a picture of a God who can't be trusted, who isn't really working for our good. And isn't this how the enemy always attacks us? With a whisper in our ear that says, You sure God is good? Because your life doesn't look like God is good. Your marriage definitely doesn't look like God had your best interests in mind. You sure you don't just want to test the waters and see what's out there? Would a good God really allow this to happen to your business? Would a good God really allow this to happen to your family? Would a good God really allow your mom to get sick? You see, this is what the enemy does best. Now, there's a small detail in here you may have missed, but it's so important. Okay? Remember how last week I talked about how in Genesis 2, pretty much from beginning to end, the name used for God is actually Yahweh Elohim. Okay? Translated for us, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God. And we said this was important because this is the personal covenantal name for God, and it's supposed to signify the kind of intimate relationship God desires to have with his people. Well, at the beginning of Genesis 3, Satan does something so slick. 
He doesn't use that name. He refers to God as just Elohim, the generic name for God. He goes back to that name. And when the woman responds, she also refers to God as just Elohim. He's all-powerful, holy, but no longer personal. You know, one of my favorite shows growing up was The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And there's this famous episode, and even if you're not a Fresh Prince fan, I know that everyone knows what episode I'm talking about here. Uh, I don't think I'm over-exaggerating when I say this was probably one of the most emotional moments in television history. But in this particular episode, it's basically about Will and his deadbeat dad, Lou, who kind of shows up after 14 years after having abandoned Will as a child, and all of a sudden he wants to get back into Will's life. And of course, Will's super ecstatic because he finally gets to spend time with his dad. He even decides he's going to move away with him. And the day they're supposed to leave, his dad does it again. He flakes on him, essentially abandons him. And in their final conversation, Will's dad turns to Will and he says, It was good seeing you, son. And Will replies, You too, Lou. He doesn't call him dad. He calls him Lou. And it's this heart-wrenching moment that if you were watching it, you knew that at that moment, their relationship was never going to be the same. Their relationship was shattered forever. And that's what we're seeing here in Genesis 3. That even before the woman took a bite of that fruit, we see that the relationship between mankind and God is standing on shaky ground. Because she calls him Elohim, not Yahweh Elohim. Okay, so where does sin come from? It comes from the false belief that God can't be trusted, that God isn't good. Number two, what is sin? Well, take a look at verse six. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Now, I'm sure many of us are reading this thinking, That was it? Eating fruit from a tree? That was the sin that caused everything that's wrong with our world today? I mean, it would make sense if the first sin was an act of violence or murder, but eating fruit from a tree? The punishment doesn't seem like it fits the crime. And along with that, why would God put a random tree in the middle of a garden and then without any explanation whatsoever forbid them to eat from it? Man, I want you to think about this. If you were to tell anybody, don't go into that room no matter what. Why? Just because? Of course we know what's going to happen. We know that they're going to want to go into that room more than ever. And so if God really didn't want them to eat from this tree, why didn't he just tell them more specifically what would happen if they did? Because I'm pretty sure if he told them, hey, if you eat from this tree, you're going to cause a massive ripple effect that's going to lead to every evil known to mankind. Maybe they wouldn't eat from it. And yet this is what God does. But I think that's the whole point. God is saying, I don't need to explain myself to you because I don't answer to you. I'm God. I created you. Your life and everything you have is a gift given to you by me, which means You don't get to decide what is good and what is not good. I do. And the tree is there to represent the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. 
that we are to depend on him like a child depends on his parents. You know, parents don't have to provide an explanation anytime they tell their kids not to do something. Kids just have to trust that their parents know better than they do. So when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, it wasn't about the fruit. It was man saying to God, I know better than you do. I want to decide what is good and what is not good. It was man substituting himself for God. And when you think about it, this is what all sin boils down to. You know, when we lust, what are we doing? We are disregarding what God says about sex in the context of marriage, and we're saying, we know better than you do. We know what is good and what is not good. When we verbally abuse someone, we are disregarding what God says about everyone being created in his image, and we're saying, we're going to decide who is worthy of our love. We know better than you do. You see, sin is not about breaking the rules. It's about breaking a relationship. It's man saying, not your will be done, but my will be done. Okay? So where does sin come from? It comes from a belief that God can't be trusted. What is sin? It's man substituting himself for God. Okay? And number three, what does sin do to us? Notice in verse seven, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You see, the moment they try to put themselves in the place of God is the moment they realize they're naked and they realize the need to hide themselves. And from that point on, this has been the story that has defined mankind. It's man trying to be God, failing miserably at it, and then realizing they're naked and then doing everything they can to hide themselves. We hide behind our wealth. We hide behind our degrees. We hide behind our popularity, our kids, our good deeds. We hide behind everything. And some of us can go a very long time without being found out. But all it takes is something like COVID-19 to take the rug out from under us to expose who we really are. All it takes is something like COVID-19 to show us that at the end of the day, we aren't God. We don't control the world. And everything we once hid behind ultimately cannot keep us safe and it ultimately cannot save us. You know, uh, my son Jack still does not understand how to play the game hide and seek. I mean, no matter how many times I try to teach him, he thinks that if he can't see me, I can't see him. So every time we start playing the game, I start counting to 10, 1, 2, 3, and I see him right in front of me. He's looking around and at the end of the day, you know what he always does? He puts his hand over his eyes. Because again, he thinks as long as he covers his own eyes, I can't see him. And I think this is what we look like to God. We're doing this dance in front of him, trying to cover our emptiness and our insecurities and our shame. And God is saying, what are you doing? You're not fooling anyone. Well, if this is the case, what's the solution? Which brings us to the final point. What hope do we have? Notice how this section ends. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Now I'm not sure if you caught this, but in verse 8, for the first time in chapter 3, God is suddenly referred to as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And it's a subtle shift, 
but it's so very powerful because it's this moment of reassurance for the reader that even though we've messed everything up, there's still hope for this relationship. Now, when God calls out to the man, where are you? Is it because he really doesn't know where he is? Of course not. He's God. He knows everything. You know, when I hear a loud noise and I run up the stairs and I see my daughter standing there holding a bucket and my son rubbing his head crying, I know exactly what happened. But you know what I do every time? I say, Avery, what did you do? And I ask her that question, not because I don't know, but because I'm giving her an opportunity to come clean. And when God calls out to the man and says, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know. It's an act of grace. It's an invitation. It's an opportunity for the man to come clean. And this is basically the storyline of the entire Bible, and it's what separates Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion is a story of man chasing God. Only Christianity is the story of God chasing man. And we see the best example of this in the person of Jesus Christ, who, according to Luke 19.10, came to seek and to save the lost. You know, the night before Jesus was crucified, he also found himself in a garden. And in that garden, Jesus was also given the choice to either do it his way or to submit to the will of the Father. And there's this moment when he falls flat on his face and he cries out in anguish, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. You see, the destruction of humanity came when man substituted himself for God. When he said, not your will, but my will be done. The salvation of humanity came when God substituted himself for man taking on the punishment all of us justly deserved so that we would no longer have to hide behind our fame, our fortune, whatever fig leaves we have in our lives. But as Colossians 3 says, our lives would be hidden with Christ our God. And this is such a beautiful truth for us today because it reminds us of the heart of a God who leaves the 99 to go after the one who will stop at nothing to seek us and to bring us back to himself. And so friends, I believe the question God is asking all of us today is where are you? And he's not asking us because he doesn't know. He's not asking us to shame us or to condemn us. He's asking us to remind us that He's a God who relentlessly pursues us and graciously invites us to come back to Him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess that we've often doubted Your goodness and have tried to be our own saviors. We buy into the lies of the enemy that we're better off without You. But in spite of our rebellion, you're constantly chasing after us. And we thank you that in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you've made a way for us to come back to you. So today we repent of our pride and our self-sufficiency, and we ask for your grace and your mercy to deliver us once again. In Jesus' name, amen.